What glorious truths to sing this morning. I've been looking on the YouTube feed uh, while we were worshiping. I see we have over a hundred different uh, people that are currently watching right now and know that several others are probably tuning in or will be tuning in later. So thank you so much for being with us today. Last week I gave kind of a challenge to the church and I've noticed several of our church members that have taken up on that challenge. I want to invite you to be a part of that today if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention has been doing a campaign called Who's Your One over the last uh, year, and they challenged us this, this last week to, to challenge our churches for all of our church members to take about a 60-second video of you sharing your testimony, your story of faith in Christ, and posting that to your social media feed uh, this Easter Sunday. And so I know several people over the weekend have already done so, and it's been wonderful watching people share their stories. And so if you haven't done that yet, I invite you to do that today. I invite you to take out your cell phone, and then you can just uh, go to your video uh, app, and you can record yourself doing just a, a self-video, sharing your story, and then if you would upload that to your social media feed. I'm going to upload my story here uh, after lunch today, and I hope that it encourages and blesses you. And you can put that up there using the hashtag, my story. Now somebody I was talking to this week said, I have no idea what a hashtag is, and I have no idea what, how to do that. So I recognize that uh, for some of you that may be a challenge. A hashtag is simply the pound sign that you would use on your phone. You can use that pound sign and then the words my story, just no spaces, M-Y-S-T-O-R-Y. And you can put that on there and that'll be a way for you to share your story today. Well, welcome to Easter 2020, social distancing style. Truly, I thought about this yesterday as I began to contemplate what I would share today. And I began to think about the fact that today my heart breaks as I sit in a mostly empty church auditorium to speak to a camera and share the message and celebrate the most wonderful truth of all truths, and that is the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. Normally, on this day, the gathered church at Central Park would be here, and every one of these seats would probably be occupied. We would have hundreds of people here. And we would be celebrating together. There would be a sense of joy. There would be a sense of eager anticipation. There would be a sense of celebration. There would be a, a resonation of voices as the church would sing the songs that we just sang. But unfortunately, that's not happening today. But the fact that we are in a place where the seats are empty, uh, this place is still filled today with the glorious joy and hope of the resurrection and Easter. And so I want to share with you this morning an Easter message out of Matthew chapter 28. And if you've got a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. We're going to read Matthew's account of the resurrection. I could have picked any of those. All four of the Gospels record the resurrection of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ. But my heart is always drawn this time of year towards Matthew's account. I really like the way that he lays it out. And so I want to read that with you today. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to read along with me. If not, we'll put the text up on the screen and you can read it up on the screen. Matthew writes here in Matthew 28, verse 1, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the, the tomb and uh, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and go to Galilee, and they, there they will see me. Just as the angel declared to the women that morning to go and to declare to the disciples that he is not here, he is risen, the church has been declaring that message for over 2,000 years. We've been broadcasting over and over and over again, not just once a year on Easter Sunday morning, but every day Christ's disciples celebrate and declare the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ is not in a tomb. He has risen from the dead. Certainly these past few weeks have been filled with many challenges that have forced us to ask some very hard questions. One of those hard questions that we began to contemplate several weeks ago is how in the world do we do Easter Sunday without the gathered church? Luckily, we've been able over the course of the last few weeks to, to, to use this technology and to broadcast and, and feel like that we know what we're doing, being able to live stream this. But it still doesn't feel like Easter Sunday when the church isn't here. Even for that reason, David and I have talked and even several fellow pastors in town have all had the same idea, which is the first Sunday that we're able to get back together as a church family, we're going to celebrate that Sunday as a Resurrection Sunday. We're going to sing again and anew the songs of Easter. We're going to look again at the hope of the risen Savior. Uh, you know, Easter is a day on the calendar that we recognize as church, as Christians and as church family, but every Sunday is a Resurrection Sunday for the church, and we're going to be celebrating that. Another one of those hard questions that I began to reflect on this week as I began to think about the message that I would bring this morning to you as the church is, why do we as Christians make such a big deal about this holiday? What's the big deal about Easter? What's the big deal that we feel this sense of loss, this, this sense of disconnectedness on this very important day? What's the big deal that causes people to get up in the morning and change their profile pictures to messages of hope on Easter Sunday morning? What's the big deal about Easter that causes people who even normally don't go to church very often to have some sense of expectation, at least in the area that we live, that on Easter Sunday morning you need to be in church? I remember last year as Easter Sunday was, was taking place, I went out in the parking lot to, to greet people that were coming to church that morning. And I, I met dozens and dozens and dozens of people that I had never met before who were coming to Central Park Baptist Church because it was Easter Sunday morning and they wanted to be in a local church. What is the big deal about Easter that causes us to want to gather together here? And what is it that causes that sense of, of emptiness and disconnectedness this morning because we can't gather? You see, for most people in our nation... Easter is recognized as just another respectable religious holiday. It's on par but no different than a Muslim who celebrates Ramadan or Jews who celebrate Passover. 
It's a holiday that is to be respected and is respected in many ways in our country. And it is a holiday that is revered by Christians. But for most people in our world today, Easter is just another religious holiday. For most people today, it will be more about spending time with the family, helping children hunt color eggs filled with goodies. And for many people, it marks the beginning of the spring season. Very few people outside of the church, very few people outside of true believers in Jesus Christ will give little thought today about, the, about Jesus Christ rising from the dead and the implications of that truth on our lives. While many of us watching this live stream right now are followers of Jesus and, and our hearts are, are filled with hope today as we celebrate Easter, the reality of it is in the country that we live with over 300 and something million people is that hundreds of millions of people will not really contemplate what you and I are talking about today. The thought that Jesus is alive and that the tomb is empty is a historical thought maybe in the back of their minds, but it's not something that resonates in their hearts. But the truth of the matter is that if you believe that Jesus Christ was not just another religious teacher, but that He was the Son of God put to death by His heavenly Father on the cross to die for the sins of mankind, buried in a tomb, and rose again three days later, if you really believe that, then how can you pass over that truth without it radically affecting your life? Paul would write, that the message that you and I celebrate today is the most critical, important message that you and I could ever hear. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And just a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 15, he would, even, he would even draw that implication out further when he said, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we are found to be misrepresenting God. Paul is saying we are liars if Christ is not risen from the dead, because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep or died in Christ have perished. And if in Christ only we have hope in this life, then we as Christians are of all people most to be pitied. You see, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is more than just a yearly religious holiday. It is the central hub upon which the entire message of Christianity revolves. It is the most glorious truth of all truths. And it, sent, it cannot be simply believed like we believe the fact that George Washington was the first president of our country. You see, if, if the message of Jesus Christ and the message of the empty tomb is to truly be believed, it will change everything about us. Think about it for a moment. The first disciples and followers of Jesus Christ boldly declared that Jesus Christ of Nazareth was not only killed by Roman officials and Jewish religious leaders on a cross, and that His body was placed in a tomb that was sealed with a stone, 
but that three days later, that same Jesus Christ rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb. Think about the magnitude for a moment of that statement. And think about the critical importance that Jesus Christ is in fact not dead. He is alive. Following Jesus' death, his followers placed him inside the tomb of a rich man known by the name of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was, was a member of the Sanhedrin, a prominent uh, probably very wealthy person. And the, the location of his tomb would have been very, very, very well known, not only to him, but to many others. That tomb was guarded by a squadron, a squadron of Roman soldiers. And even after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there began to be a, a, a story that was purported. Matthew records it in verses 11 through 15 of his gospel in chapter 28, that Jesus' disciples came and somehow or another they were able to sneak by or overtake a squadron of Roman soldiers and roll away a 2,000 pound stone and take the body of Jesus out of that tomb and went and hid him. Others say that perhaps Mary, and, and Martha, Mary Magdalene and Mary were mistaken and they went to the wrong tomb that day. Perhaps they went to the wrong one and, and they saw that the tomb was empty and, and, and they had some vision of an angel that gave them this message. I think about the ridiculous, ridiculousness of that theory. You see, um, the disciples of Jesus and the women knew exactly where the tomb of Jesus was. I was thinking about this this week. My grandmother died 11 years ago. And... She is buried in a large cemetery in my hometown of Columbus, Mississippi. That cemetery is 65 acres large and contains within it over 16,000 graves. I haven't lived in my hometown of Columbus, Mississippi for over 30 years, and I have not been back to the cemetery where my grandmother is buried and my grandfather is buried for 11 years. However, this past Christmas, I went to spend some time with my family, and I was just a few miles away from that cemetery, and I had with me a few of my sons, and I said, I want to go and show you the place where my grandmother and my grandfather are buried. I drove straight through town, right into the cemetery, straight into the entrance, took a right, drove two blocks of the cemetery, and drove right up to the very place where my grandmother and grandfather are buried. That was 11 years ago. And you want to tell me that a few women who followed the Lord Jesus Christ and loved Him with all of their hearts would forget what tomb Jesus was buried in in just three days. No, friends, the tomb of Jesus Christ is empty and the Lord Jesus is alive. So what's the big deal about Easter? Why do you and I need this holiday? And what does this holiday represent that other religious holidays do not. What makes Easter Sunday unique from other religious holy days? What makes it unique is what the empty tomb of Jesus declares. And so I want to give you four declarations of the empty tomb this morning that, that you can follow along in your notes with. These are four things that the empty tomb declares to you and to me. And the first of those is that the empty tomb declares that my death has been defeated. Because Jesus Christ rose from the grave, my death has been defeated. You know, one of the greatest fears that most people have is the fear of death. Death is that cold reality that all of us know is inevitable, yet few of us spend much time contemplating, especially from a biblical perspective. Death is that annoying neighbor that you recognize is there, but that you avoid at all cost. But the fact of the matter is, 
that every person on this planet from the moment they are born is a dead man or a dead woman walking. The Bible presents for us three different types of death. There is physical death, there is a spiritual death, and there is eternal death. And from birth, you and I are born spiritually dead. The Bible tells us that we have inherited a curse from our first parent, Adam. You and I are born physically and, and, and with vibrant life. There's nothing more precious than, than seeing a newborn baby born and, and thinking about that baby and the, and the life that he represents. But from the moment that you and I are born, we have inherited a sin nature that causes us to reject God and to choose to live life on our terms and in direct contradiction with God's law and with God's holiness. As a matter of fact, Paul would write it in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, like this. He said, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. That death is not physical death. That death is spiritual death. That you and I are born spiritually dead and that we, what hangs over us are the sins and trespasses in which we walked following the course of this world. All people are born spiritually dead and rightfully bear the physical curse of death. However, unless you come to the point where you are spiritually reborn, you will one day stand under the sentence of eternal death. One of the popular myths that exist in our culture is that people at, are, are basically good at heart and that all that it takes to get to heaven is to be a good person and to do good things, to go to church, to help people in need, to be kind to others. And this problem starts with a fundamental misunderstanding about the true condition of the human heart. You see, the human heart is not good by nature. The human heart is dead by nature. And apart from the saving work of Jesus Christ, no human heart on this planet has any spiritual life whatsoever. Now, this does not mean that people who are not Christians, that people who do not trust Jesus Christ as Savior, this doesn't mean that those people can't do good things. You see, whenever there's a natural disaster, we see all kinds of people stepping up to clear trees, to give money, to cook meals. We've even seen within this coronavirus chaos, we've seen many people decide that they want to do things to help others. They want to, they want to prepare meals for people. And you don't have to be a follower of Jesus Christ or believe that Jesus is the Son of God to do good things. Spiritually dead people can do all kinds of deeds of compassion and kindness. The problem is that people without Christ think that these good deeds that they do earn them spiritual points with God. They think that because they perform good actions that God is obligated to take those good actions into, into account and to give them credit for them. But the problem is that the blindness of the human heart doesn't take into account at the same time all the times that we have violated the laws of God. It doesn't take into account what God requires of you and me is not goodness. What God requires of you and me is absolute moral perfection. This is the reason why the Bible says to us that all have sinned and that the wages of sin is death. Spiritual death, eventually physical death, and until we come to know Jesus Christ, potentially eternal death. Sin in us renders us spiritually dead, even while we may be experiencing vibrant physical life. And it will one day render us an eternal death if we physically die under the weight of our sins. 
You see, God knows that what you and I don't need is a list of good deeds to perform because we are dead. Instead, we need a resurrection to a new life. We need a spiritual rebirth. That's why Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, that while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages He might show to us the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is why the message of the empty tomb is the greatest news of all news for Christians. It says that because Jesus is alive, He can bring to you and me new spiritual life. Romans 6, chapter 4 says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, As by one man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. The good news of the empty tomb is that just as Jesus bore our sins on the cross and died in our place, He rose again to demonstrate His victory over sin, death, and the grave. And just as His death on the cross is our death, His life is now our life. See, the empty tomb declares to you and me that my death has been defeated. My spiritual death and my eternal death have been defeated. And I can now have new life in Jesus Christ. But secondly, the empty tomb declares for you and me that my hope has been restored. My hope has been restored. I think you probably felt this over the last few weeks, but our world is presently going through a hope crisis. Even over the last couple of years, recent political gridlock has demonstrated time and time again that we cannot put our hope in government and we cannot put our hope in politicians. And when 2020 began, our country was experiencing an economic boom. The stock market was higher than it had ever been. And more people were employed than any other time in our nation. And yet, in a matter of just a few weeks, what was once seen as an obscure virus in the very remote parts of China has brought the entire world to its knees. We've watched as this microscopic virus has stolen not only the lives of many people, but it has sucked out any sense of hope from people in our country. And the reality of it is that too often in our world, hope is hard to come by. Too often, people in our world equate hope with sort of a a Jiminy Cricket kind of theology. And that is that if you were to wish upon a star, everything that your heart desires will come to you. But we find out very quickly that that is a lie. We cannot put our hope in people because all of us have have learned that people will eventually fail us. We cannot put our hope in systems because systems eventually break down. The poet Robert Frost wrote it this way. He wrote, nature's first green is gold, her hardest hue to hold. Her early leaves of flower, but only so an hour. Then leaf subsides to leaf, so Eden sank to grief. So dawn goes down today, nothing gold can stay. The sense of hopelessness that you and I experience comes not just from broken people and broken systems in our world, but it comes from a deeper source. The sense of hopelessness that you and I experience comes from our separation from a sovereign creator because of our sin. 
Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, remember those of us who are followers of Jesus, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise. Look at this, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Do you see that? That separation from God brings with it a natural sense of hopelessness. To live without God is to live without hope. And the reason that so many people in our world have a hard time with hope is because the objects of our hope are often too small and too powerless to save us. They can do nothing more than provide for us temporary satisfaction, but that satisfaction will not last. But Christian hope is different. You see, Christian hope is a deep and abiding assurance of not what is, but what is to come. And Christian hope is something that is grounded not in the reality of our circumstances, but in the reality of a person, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, Christians have hope in this world because our hope is not of this world. 1 Timothy 4 says this, To this end we, as Christians, toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. The empty tomb took those disciples of Jesus from a state of despair and disillusionment to a people infused with hope who would proclaim the gospel literally to the ends of the earth. And the empty tomb declares not only that has my death been defeated, but my hope that was once lost can now be restored. <clears throat> Thirdly, the empty tomb declares for you and me that my faith has been renewed. My faith has been renewed. Now I need to make an uncomfortable confession to you right now, and that is I'm a child of the 80s. And as a child of the 80s, I'm a product of the hair band movement. Most of my days in high school and college were driving around listening to a cassette tape in my car and listening to many different hair bands. And one of those was a band by the name of Poison. One of the most popular songs by the rock band Poison was a song called Give Me Something to Believe In. And in the song, the lead singer, Brett Michaels, sings about a prosperity gospel preacher who preaches about the promised land and Jesus while appealing for money to pad his own pocket. He speaks about a wounded veteran returning home to experience grief and heartache in a world that doesn't understand him. He speaks about the death of his best friend who died in a lonely hotel room. And in the sense of all of that hopelessness, he says, Give me something to believe in if there's a Lord above. Give me something to believe in, O Lord, arise. I'm here today to tell you today, church, that the Lord has risen from the dead. And that he does give us something to believe in. So many people can resonate and resonated with that song in the 80s because we have found that faith in this world is a fragile thing that is too often broken. We placed our faith in people only to be betrayed. We placed our faith in stuff only to see it get broken. We placed our faith in money only to see it taken away. We placed our faith in sensual pleasures only to find that they leave us feeling emptier. And so what the result of that is that many people choose not to place their faith in anything or anyone ever again. Because faith is only as powerful as the object in which it is placed. And that's why faith in anything in this world will always disappoint. 
The eyes of faith were never meant to look at God through the perspective of our circumstances. The eyes of faith are meant to look at our circumstances through the lens of the gospel. Paul understood this truth better than anyone else. He at one time placed his faith in himself to keep God's law perfectly and would even come to the point where he would eventually take the lives of people who would one day be brothers and sisters in Christ thinking that he was doing the right thing for God. More than anyone, Paul understood the importance of Jesus' empty tomb on, the, on Easter Sunday morning when he said, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Paul is saying that if Jesus never rose from the dead and his body is still lying in a tomb in Jerusalem, then any hope that you and I have as Christians for a new spiritual life is meaningless. And any faith we have in Jesus Christ is futile. It is broken and it cannot deliver what it promises. But just a few verses later, he would say in verses 20 through 22, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The first fruits of those who died. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. The empty tomb of Jesus Christ declares today that while faith in yourself, faith in other people, faith in government, faith in substances, faith in entertainment... And as a Mississippi State fan, faith in your favorite sports team will always and eventually fail to deliver what they promise. Jesus Christ will never let you down. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. And that He today can forgive you of your sins and lead you to the Father. The empty tomb declares that my death has been defeated, my hope has been restored, and my faith has been renewed. But not only that, the empty tomb declares today that my life has a greater purpose. My life has a greater purpose. Perhaps the most perplexing question in all of life is this, what am I here for? I can remember wrestling with that question as a young man. I can remember thinking in those awkward years of, of adolescence when I looked around and I saw my friends and I saw what, what they valued and I struggled with my own personal worth and my own value, and I would ask myself oftentimes, what am I here for? What is my purpose in life? For most people in this world, the answer to that question is that I am here for me. I exist for me. I exist for my personal pleasure. I'm here to suck out all the marrow out of life and to do the most I can to please myself and to advance my personal agenda. And yet... The reality of life is that if your life is centered on you, it's a very small and insignificant life. No matter what you accomplish, no matter how high you climb, no matter what you attain, one day you and I will die. And your accomplishments might take up a few pages in a book, but everything that you have acquired will one day turn to rust and dust. The fact of the matter is that your purpose in life doesn't revolve around you at all because you are too little of a God to really matter in the end. I want you to look at this profound verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Thinking about the resurrection, Paul writes, The love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. 
And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. See, the resurrection of Jesus Christ declares that my life has a greater purpose. You were, not, you were created by God, not by accident. You are the intentional, thoughtful, and deliberate creation and product of a loving, holy God. You were created by God to be an image bearer of Him. And part of bearing that image is that you and I were created to seek glory. The hearts create, cre- crave glory and majesty and wonder and beauty. And our souls resonate to be connected to something greater and bigger than our little small corner of the planet. But the problem is that too often you and I seek glory in things that are much less than what our hearts were created for. We substitute the glory and the majesty of holy God for the fading glories of so many lesser things. Things like money, power, lust, relationships, or adventure. You were not created for these things, and these things will never satisfy you eternally. They will always leave you empty. They will always leave you wanting more. They will always let you down. You were not created to spend your days building monuments to your fleeting glory. And you were not created to measure your life by your bank account or your place on the company flowchart. You were not created to find your ultimate joy in an earthly relationship or a vacation home. The Bible says that you and I were created for the glory of God. The Bible testifies that as followers of Jesus Christ, that Christ is our life and that you and I were created to seek our glory in Him and to reflect His glory to the world. You see, your ultimate purpose is not just to make this world a better place. The world that you live in is a fallen world, a temporal world, and a fleeting world. Your purpose is not to make this world a better place. Your purpose is to reflect the glory of Jesus Christ to this world because one day He will make it a better place. And the empty tomb declares to you and to me today that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God and the one who rose from the grave. And because of that, my life's purpose is now bigger than my little corner of the world. My life's purpose is to follow Him and declare His glory to all the world. So in wrapping it up, I want to ask you this morning, what do you do as a result of this? If this is true that the tomb is empty, if this is true that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, and if it's true that because of that, the empty tomb declares that my death has been defeated, my my hope has been renewed, my faith has been restored, and my life has a greater purpose, then what do I do about that? Because it's very possible that there are those who are watching here today that while you may have heard that truth before, you may have even intellectually believed that truth at one time or another. The fact of the matter is, is that you're not walking in new life in Christ. You're not experiencing the power of the resurrection. You're not experiencing the hope of the empty tomb. The fact of the matter is that your life is lived solely for you and, and, and your life's purpose goes no further than what you're experiencing today. But I want to invite you into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. If you're listening today and the Holy Spirit's been speaking to you and the Holy Spirit's been convicting you that, that maybe you never really have truly known Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords and your personal Savior, that today is the day of salvation, that today, even though you can't be in a room with a, with a bunch of people who are followers of Jesus Christ, that today you can trust the gospel. Today you can believe the truth of the gospel 
that Jesus Christ came to this world, that he lived a perfect life on your behalf, that he went to the cross and he died a death that was reserved for you, that on the cross the, the heavenly Father placed all of your sins on the Lord Jesus so that the full penalty of those sins could be paid for, that Jesus went to a tomb and that he experienced the death that you and I are supposed to experience. And that three days later, he rose from that tomb to claim victory over sin, death, and the grave. That's the only message that really matters today. And you can trust in that message by faith. So what do you do? You do three things. You're going to see them on the screen. Number one, you need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Bible tells us that when Jesus asked this question of his disciple, and he said, who do people say that I am? And some said, well, some say that you're Elijah. Some say that you're Moses. Some say that you're one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The fact of the matter is, if Jesus rose from the dead, then it proves that he is the Son of God. And because he is risen from the dead, he is Lord over life and he is Lord over eternity. He is Lord over sin and he is Lord over Satan himself. He alone holds the keys to hell and heaven and no one comes to, the, to God except through him. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 10 verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you can be saved for with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But belief is not just mentally ascribing to a set of facts. Belief is not just hearing the gospel and saying, okay, yeah, I think I believe that is true. Belief is faith. Belief is full reliance upon the truth of the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. Just as when I sat here this morning to begin this sermon, I put myself on this stool with full faith that this stool would be able to hold me up while I was delivering this message today. You and I, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, must place our full reliance on Jesus and believe with everything that we have that He is the Christ. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ. Secondly, you must trust in Christ alone to save you. You must come to the point of understanding that you're not saved by your good works. That God is not a spiritual accountant in heaven who keeps a record of all of our good deeds and bad deeds. <clears throat> that the economy of heaven doesn't work the same way that you and I work. And that the wages of sin is death, which means that one violation of God's law, one sin is enough to sentence you to an eternity apart from God. And that there's not enough works that you and I can do that can overcome the weight and the penalty of that sin. And so what do you and I do? You and I must trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone to save us. It's not about good religious works. It's not about perfect church attendance. It's about full trust in Jesus Christ and Him alone to save you. You need to believe that Jesus is the Christ. You need to trust that He alone can save you. And then you need to follow Him wherever He leads. You need to follow Him wherever He leads. You see, Jesus didn't come to, to create a church that would be a an organization full of religious people that would gather together and do religious stuff. Jesus came to make disciples. Jesus came to take people from spiritual death to spiritual life and to create a band of people who would follow him wherever he would lead them. And so there is no such thing as, as trust in Jesus Christ without full reliance upon him as Lord and without full following him wherever he would lead. And so if by faith today you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that you would trust 
in Him alone to save you and that you would be willing to follow Him wherever He leads, I invite you today into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes wherever you are in your living room or on your back porch or wherever this morning? I want to lead you in a very simple prayer that you by faith can become a follower of Jesus Christ today. If you know that you need the Lord Jesus, if you know that you're tired of being sick and tired, you're tired of living life your way, you're tired of of your life basically being about nothing more than your small little corner of the world, and that you want to experience the power of the resurrection, that you want to experience the truth that, that your spiritual death has been defeated, that your hope has been renewed, that you can have faith that can be restored and that your life can have a greater purpose. And I invite you to pray this prayer with me. Just pray, dear Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ. I believe that you are the son of the living God. I believe that you came to this earth to live a life of perfect obedience on my behalf. I believe you went to the cross to die for my sins. I believe that you were buried in a tomb and that you rose again to give me victory over my sin. By faith today, I trust in you and you alone to save me. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. I confess to you that I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin and I commit to following you wherever you may lead me. In Jesus' name I pray. Hopefully you prayed that prayer today. And if you did, we want to know about that. If you want to, you can give me a phone call. You can send me a text message. My, my cell phone number is 256-794-3074. You can just shoot me a text message and say, I prayed and asked Jesus to be my Savior today. We'll rejoice in that with you. Maybe today you have some other thing, some other prayer need that you would have. You can, you can text me. You can send me an email. My email is matt at centralparkbaptist.org. We hope that today has been a glorious day for you, not only as we sing the songs of the hope of the resurrection, but as we look at the power of the Word of God and we've seen the things that the tomb of Jesus Christ declares. I want to say again, thank you for joining us today. It's been a bittersweet day and a hard day as we've been communicating the gospel and thinking about the fact that we can't be together. But we look forward to the day very soon when the church will gather back together in this room and we will sing anew and aloud the songs of Jesus Christ, and we invite you to be a part of that. Hope you have a happy Easter. Thank you very much for joining us today.